You are listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders. Brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. In the years that I have worked in healthcare, I have seen the term patients first plastered on so many company websites. More often than not, though, that promise does not hold up when you look under the hood. They say patients first, but what they really mean is, we thought about patients at some point. The thing they are missing out on is the powerful results that come from understanding patients as people, and whole people at that. The guest for today's podcast is Dr. Jennifer Moulet. She is the real deal when it comes to patient first. She is a groundbreaking researcher for a rare 3Q29 microdeletion and its association with a number of rare conditions. But more importantly, she is someone who has designed her innovative research around the intimate understanding of her patients as people, with families, with dreams, and with deep questions. I won't spoil it for you, but her story, like mine, is very personal, and her intellect is only outmatched by our heart for serving people. So Jen, we, uh, we were talking last time, um, last time we spoke, and I think there's a lot of groundbreaking research you do, but one of the things that, I, that, I, that really hit me, uh, hit home to me was a lot like me. You have a, a kind of a personal journey of how you got into the rare and orphan uh, disorder space. Um, and I'd love for our listeners to, to know that because I think that really kind of tells the story of who you are and why you do what you do. So could you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, your, your history, how you got into this and, and uh, where, what rare disease and, and orphan disease means to you? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks, Donovan. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so as we talked about previously, um, growing up, my dad had two sisters um, one of his sisters was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia when she was in her 20s. And then his middle sister had a syndrome that was more like bipolar disorder than schizophrenia. Um, but she had some clear episodes of psychosis and some modest decline in function throughout her life. Uh, and these were sort of two significant role models or two significant people that I knew about growing up um, who both were fairly close family-wise who had mental illness. Um, and before I knew anything about genetics, or heritability or recurrence risk ratios or anything like that, I understood in a very sort of intuitive way that I was at risk. Um, and I spent um, most of my high school years, my college years, I spent time after college wondering, is today the day? Is today the day that I'm going to experience um, hallucinations, delusions? Um, am I going to hear voices? Uh, am I going to lose, you, you know, part ways with reality? Um, and I didn't get serious about anything. I didn't really apply myself in college. Uh, I didn't really invest in a career or a relationship because I wasn't sure if, um, you know, mental illness was going to steal all that from me. Like, why invest in uh, mm -hmm. in goals if they're only going to be sort of stolen by mental illness? Um, and so you may know that risk for schizophrenia peaks around the age of 20 to 25 and then falls off precipitously. And by the time you reach the age of 30, if you haven't gotten schizophrenia, you're unlikely to get it. Um, and so I got to be about 28 and I hadn't experienced hallucinations or delusions or, and I had a reasonably <laughs> a, a reasonable relationship to reality. 
Um, and so, and it was sort of a, uh, it was almost like a new identity. Like maybe I'm not going to get sick after all. Um, and then I had to adjust to, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to spend, you know, my occupational life? Um, and of course, you know, for a while I was worried, you know, is it going to be me? And then I came to this dawning realiza- realization and then I was like, well, why not me? Right. Why aren't I going to get schizophrenia? How did I escape this genetic Russian roulette? I um, mean, that was, was what really inspired me um, and my interest in the genetics of schizophrenia. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an amazing story. And, and I even look at it like this, like you didn't apply yourself, you didn't do things. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you decided I'm going to do something about this. And I'm not only going to do something about this, I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to become a doctor. And now I'm going to be one of the foremost researchers on these things. And the path that you took is just, you know, it's one, not normal, but it's, 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 it's commendable. And it's, it's, it's astounding that, that you, that, you know, when you're, when you're in late twenties, you go, yeah, I'm going to take on the world. I'm going to become a, a, a doctor and I'm going to, I'm going to go to a, you know, and I, I know Johns Hopkins was your, you know, your institution of choice. And I'm going to go to the, one of the best places to, you know, to, to hone my craft and, um, you know, and, and now you're into research. So it, it's, it's not a path that most people take and, and it's, it's a harder path than I think most people would take, but it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you did take that path. And I'm sure a lot of the folks that you've met and, and helped along the way, um, are on there. So, so tell us a little bit more about, um, your research and some of your goals and, and, and the things that you've done, um, through your personal story and through your, um, quest. Yeah. The first thing I want to say is um, it's so fun to hear you describe my narrative <laughs> like that because <laughs> that's not kind of that's not how it went. Right. Like uh, the way it went is like, you know, every journey begins with a step. Right. I right. took a step and then I took another step. And, it, and, and looking back, sure, I climbed this mountain, but it, it certainly didn't feel like that at the time. Um, so. Right. So now I'm in my you know mid 20s and I think I'm not going to get schizophrenia. And now I go to school um, and I started. Um, studying the genetics of schizophrenia. Uh, and it turned out that the time that I went to school, the genetics of schizophrenia was a bit of a mess. Um, we didn't understand the underlying genetic architecture. Um, there were a lot of, there would be findings that were incredibly promising. And as a graduate student, I would think, oh, I'm too late. Someone's <laughs> figured it out. And then a few years later, it'd be like, well, that finding actually doesn't bear any water. It's not really. I um, mean, so there were a lot of like sputtering stops and starts and really exciting things. And then they turned out to not really be real. Um, and I was sort of caught up in that I um, when I started graduate school um, and it was um, both uh, it was both, I would say, exciting and it was also a good lesson it was sort of a you know a terrible warning like you know you have to, this is this is going to require investment and it is going to require careful thought and it is going to require um it, it is going to be a challenge uh so i did a master's degree in public health and then i did a phd in human genetics um working on schizophrenia different aspects of schizophrenia genetics and um i learned a lot and i did really careful detailed studies and we didn't really find anything actionable and then for my postdoctoral fellowship, I went to Emory University um, and I got to work with um, Dr. Steve Warren, who is one of the sort of um, really one of the giants in the field. Um, he's the person who discovered the gene for fragile X syndrome um, and really the whole mechanism of triple, repeats exp- or triple repeat expansions. Um, and I went to his lab and I sort of meekly and shyly mentioned that I was interested in schizophrenia genetics. And Dr. Warren said, 
I'm interested in that too. Let's study that. He was generous and gracious and game. And that's what we did. And at the time that I started in Steve's lab, there was this emerging discovery of copy number variation. So if you remember from high school biology, um, you know, everybody has two copies of DNA, right? They get a copy of DNA from their mom and they get a copy of DNA from their dad. Um, and we, th- and that's called diploid means two copies. Um, and human beings are diploid and we think that they're diploid everywhere. Um, and just as I was ending graduate school, we came to this realization that actually there are lots of spots in the genome um, that are, um, we call them copy number variants. There are spots in the genome where people have more than two copies or less than two copies. You can have, instead of two copies, one copy or zero copies. You can have three copies, four copies. There are some loci where people have nine or more copies of a single gene. Um, and so in learning about this, we thought, well, maybe copy number variation, maybe DNA dosage changes are associated with schizophrenia. Um, and so that's what we started to work on. And in the prog- process of that work, we found a deletion on the long arm of chromosome three that is highly associated with schizophrenia. Um, it's 1.6 megabases or 1,600,000 bases. Um, most people, everyone that you know, almost everyone that I know, have two copies of this region. Um, but there are some unlucky people who are born and they have only one copy of this interval. And there's something about having one copy of that interval, which contains 21 genes, that renders people susceptible to neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia. So, you know, that, and that it's 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 incredible that that you know you, you mentioned the starts and stops, and you know having a having a genetic disorder myself, and 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 seeing the uh, the research been done on that, you, you see those starts and stops. You see all those those times where you think you have something, and it's like, oh man, or something gets in your way, and you got to kind of go around it, and you got to figure out you know where things are and how things are going. One of the things that uh, you know, as as a researcher, you know, you, you continue going, you continue going till you find those things. And, you know, finding all the, the you know, finding this deletion and finding these, you know, that, that there's just, there's not the copy there. And looking at this, looking at the starts and stops that you've had this year gave us all a huge start and stop, right? I don't know if any of us have really started up again um, in terms of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think about the pandemic is, is the folks that, as you do research, you need, you need people. And, and as you do, as you do your research, you need people identified with, with the disorders, with the genetic, you know, deletion. What has the pandemic done? How, how has it affected your research throughout the, the this year? And how has it affected, um, you know, your patients that you're, that you're working with or the people that you're working with? So it's affected them in a bunch of ways. Um, you may know, so we have a registry for individuals with mm-hmm. 3 q deletion syndrome. Um, and 3Q29 deletions are known as rare. There aren't that many people out there, but they get diagnosed. And so we have a study, you know, it's like two to three people in that neighborhood, two to four people every month who sign up for the registry. Um, and we can track that growth. And we noticed that in March last year, it stopped. Nobody enrolled in the registry. And that happened for a few months. And then um, it was probably like June or July that we started to see it pick up. And I think that speaks to how people's, you know, their genetic testing got delayed, their um, clinic visits didn't happen. Um, You know, it's just fascinating to us how there's just this absolute stop, right? You can, like, we all stopped and there's like evidence of it that people weren't getting diagnosed. Um, And then I think a lot about our families. I think about our families with kids who have 3Q29 deletion syndrome. Um, Those kids thrive on routine. 
Um, and that's been totally disrupted. Um, kids with Rikichi non-deletion syndrome are susceptible to anxiety. Um, and here's this, right? Like no matter who you were, you felt incredible anxiety about, about the COVID epidemic and about what was happening. And I think that that trickled down within families, even to kids. And then the other issue is we didn't know if our kids were going to be extra susceptible to complications from COVID. Right. There's data that's come out. I don't know if you've seen it, that people with Down syndrome um, tended to have a more severe course with COVID, tended to be um, hospitalized more frequently, um, and also had higher mortality due to COVID. And we didn't know if that was the case with our kids. Mm-hmm. And so it was a pretty scary time, I think, for all of our families. Now, luckily, my team, research-wise, is awesome. And we have been able, even staying home, to remain productive throughout the pandemic. And we've actually had a whole bunch of papers published describing 3 q 9 deletion syndrome. In some ways, it was like a blessing for us because we'd collected a lot of data and we could just sit home and, and analyze our data right. and then publish our, <laughs> our papers. The other thing we've done is we've held a series of webinars with our families, um, and that's to sort of disseminate our research findings. And that's been amazing. Uh, it's just been incredible to connect with our families in that way. And, you know, and it, I, I actually did, I, I had an article, right. You know, a, f- a few of uh, my former colleagues or former folks I worked with, you know, years ago that are kind of on the pharmaceutical side of things, they're, they're sales reps, but they, they're, they're, they're reps that would go into doctor's offices to kind of promote awareness, education and detection of, of certain genetic disorders. And they said the same thing. They couldn't get into the doctor's offices. They couldn't see any, they couldn't, you know, promote the testing. They couldn't promote education. They couldn't promote things that were there. And, you know, unfortunately, they saw like, you know, zero testing being done and zero detection being done from that standpoint, because there was so much focus on either either the, the you know, coronavirus or there was focus on determining who was at risk for it and, and keeping those people out of, you know, harm's way. So there's a lot of telehealth. And, you know, so I, I, it seems like the same thing was happening with, with the things that you were doing. One of the things though, that I think is, has, has really been interesting. And, you know, we, we, we did a, we did an article on this is around telemedicine and what you mentioned is webinars and, um, you know, looking at how that's kind of helped with, you know, the patient community or the caregiver community and your families, has it, has it given you an idea of some maybe new ways that you kind of work with those folks and, and how has that kind of shaped, you know, some of the, research that you've done or some of the, the, the ways that you interact with caregivers is it, is it, it's, it's kind of a blessing in disguise looking at the silver lining is it's given you another way to kind of take care of the, the patients, right? Can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. And you know, our research program, I think, um, or my research program has had this, it's a little bit unusual in that, um, so we found that the 3 q 9 deletion was associated with schizophrenia. And then I um, wanted to learn everything about the 3 q 9 deletion that there was. And I sat down to read everything and it was done in about an afternoon, right? Like very little was known about the deletion and about the syndrome itself, about what the syndrome was like. Um, and so I felt like I really needed to learn about the syndrome. I needed people with the syndrome. And so I started right. the 3 q 9 registry. Um, and because it's a rare syndrome, like there aren't that many people with it. And so every individual, every family is super valuable. Um, I mean, families are valuable anyway, but right. Like, like I can't have, like every single family that there is, I need to participate in research if we're going to learn anything. Um, and it felt um, 
so one interpretation, right? Like I started the registry. It was an experiment. I didn't know if people were going to sign up for the registry. And like one interpretation is that I was this crazy lady on the internet asking <laughs> questions about their kids, right? And the families were so happy. They were like, we have even a crazy lady on the internet is better than what we've had before. <laughs> and they were amazing. Like the families, not only did they sign up for the registry, but like they call me, they email me, they send me pictures of their kids. Like they are all in. They are like, and, and it's been this wonderful thing. And so, so the way that this has evolved is really much more as a partnership, right? Like our families really do a tremendous amount of like guiding us, of helping us, you know, um, examples of that are, um, there's a family, they were actually one of the first families to sign up in the registry and they have a son with the deletion and he's one of four kids and the other three kids don't have the deletion. And they actually came to Atlanta to visit Emory University. And I was able to meet them and take them on a little tour of Atlanta, of Emory. Uh, and we got to talking about their son. And the dad said, you know, he was always small. Even when he was born, he was smaller than my other kids. Uh, and this is something that from that conversation with that dad inspired us to look at birth weight. And sure enough, kids with 3 9 deletion syndrome are born a little bit smaller. And it's stories like that. It's the anecdotal stories that our parents share with us. Um, that that have inspired many research questions. They are in some ways the best informed people, right? They live with their kids 24 seven. They know what their kids are suffering from. And so, and they wonder too, right? Is this just my child or is this part of the syndrome? And so their questions lead us to ask things in a formal research context. And so it's been a wonderful partnership. We feel very lucky, very fortunate to have um, what now have turned into really long-standing relationships. Like I have parents who text me. <laughs> I have parents who I'm friends with on Facebook. Uh, so it's been a, it's been lovely. Well, and, and I know that's how, how we got connected is, you know, is, is a family you work with and um, you know, the person did our podcast before. So um, listen to our other podcasts and you can, uh, you can, you can find out who that is. So we won't, we won't mention her by name right now, but I think that's what's connected us and you know, what, 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 you know, I look at is how passionate, you know, she was to say, you gotta, you gotta meet Jen. You, you, you have to meet Jen. Right? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm glad I did because it, it's, it's interesting that we, we both got into some of the things that we do. I, I didn't become a doctor. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not that smart, but I have, you know, the same passion is to, is to take care of, you know, people the way that my family was taken care of and for you to find reasons and answers for things that affected your family. I think that's, that's, it speaks volumes of, of that, you, that you're doing this for a, for a cause and a purpose and much more than just, you know, I got into research or I, I, I became a, you know, a, a researcher because of this, you became a researcher because of a purpose and because of a cause. And when I look at that, I look at the caregivers that, that we see out there and I look at those families and, you know, is there any, any advice you give roles that, that give it to give to those, those caregivers that are out there and, you know, anything that you're looking at from a, almost a detection standpoint for folks to kind of keep an eye on, you know, and, and maybe to ask the question, do I have this deletion? Do I have, you know, am I, should I, should I contact the, the, you know, the, the research registry, should I get involved or if I am involved, these are the things to do. So is there anything you give to the, the caregivers that are out there? Yeah. So one thing that I am always struck by, one of the questions, and I think this applies not just to our community, but to really a lot of rare disease communities. Um, We have conversations with our families and I will ask the parents, this is one of the things we ask them in our, on our sort of standard medical questionnaire. We say, 
when did you suspect that there was a problem? Or what were the first signs? And parents often say to us, um, I knew before we left the hospital, he was born and I just knew something was right. We took her home from the hospital and in the first couple of weeks, I knew that this child was different from my other children. Um, and parents often are doing that for years, right? They go to well baby visits and they go to checkups and they say, I think this is quite right. And pediatricians, right? Like they're trained, all parents think that something crazy is going on and pediatricians are trained to talk parents down from the ledge, right? Um, but eventually, but, but, but I asked the parents, like, was it validating? And many of them say, I was, you know, it's, it's an awful kind of relief, right? To get to the point where you suspect something is wrong with your baby. And then it turns out something is right. There is a, you know, not wrong, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, something is not right. Um, but if there's one lesson I would give to, to, or one thing that I would say to, to those families out there, it's like, trust your instincts. You know, right. if you think something's wrong, it's okay to, you know, and it, 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 it's okay to, um, to be firm, you know, and to, and the more evidence that you can provide to your pediatrician or to your doctor or to whatever it is, these are the, you know, the more documentation you have, these are the things that are happening. This is what happened on this day. Um, I think parents have to be really strong advocates. They are, right? We right. all know parents are, there's no stronger advocate. Um, but sometimes when you hear that doubt or when you hear that sort of skepticism mm -hmm. from your pediatrician or from a doctor, um, like push past that. <laughs> if you think Absolutely. there's a genetic, you know, yeah. Um, so trust your instincts is kind of the, the what I would say to, to parents out there. No, I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, I, you know, that, and, and, you know, we're, we're, we want to trust our physicians. We want to trust people, but they're also people, right? So they're, they're trying to take care of the problem that's in front of them. And they're trying to make sure that you're, that you feel calm. As you said, they're trying to talk the parents off the ledge. I mean, I have, I have three kids, so I, I fully understand that. And my wife will call me when one of them has a sniffle saying, I got to take him to the doctor. And it's like, okay, take him to the doctor, but you know, there, it may just be a cold. And there's, there's that inherent trust that you want to, that you want to do, but it's also the physicians are, are, are dealing with a lot of different things. And, you know, the detection sometimes, unfortunately in, a, in the rare disease world, you know, we, we hear the stats three to five different physicians, seven to 10 years before diagnosis. And, and it's true. Um, so you are hundred percent right. And, you know, keep pushing and keep understanding what's wrong with your child and what's wrong with your loved one, because it, it is, it is a, they're, they're, could be something else and there could be a root cause. So I think that's great advice is to, is to keep pushing. Um, so looking at research and, and looking at, you know, therapies and things like that, we, uh, for, for what, what we do here at, you know, at Optimi Care, we, we work with a lot of pharmaceutical companies that have therapies for orphan and, and ultra orphan um, uh, disorders and patients. And one of the things that, you know, we always see is, in, in research and development for, for, you know, different therapies, different gene therapies, or even, you know, your normal course of pharmaceuticals is the role of the pharmaceutical company or the role of, you know, th that they can play. And when I, when I talk to researchers um, and I talk to folks who've helped develop different therapies that are out there, what are some of the roles that those pharmaceutical companies can play and, and, and to what could, what degree can they kind of shape that visibility for patients and how can they get involved with patients to, to maybe bring some therapies to light? Yeah. 
so so i i often think of it as a a pyramid structure or a hierarchy right mm -hmm. um before we're ready for therapy there's some basic level of understanding we have to have about the disorder itself um and there's a couple of pieces one is we need to know right like um we need to know what the genes are we may need to know um something about mechanism, not always, but sometimes um, knowing something about mechanisms is, is good. We also need to have um, uh, some good, we talk about this a lot, outcome measures, right? We need to know what to expect yep. because we need to have measures to tell whether there's improvement. Um, and a lot of that is like a huge investment, right? And that's where NIH and publicly funded research comes in. Um, because I think a drug company couldn't afford that, right? They couldn't afford 10 or 15 years of work. Um, but I think the point at which we're ready, the point at which we have that understanding and we think that there's a therapy, that's the point at which I think drug companies or pharmaceutical companies can step in. Um, and so I view it very much as almost like a natural progression. I hope that soon in 3Q29 deletion syndrome, we'll be ready for that kind of partnership with a pharmaceutical company where we could get to treatment. That's kind of the dream, right? That's the, our end goal for sure. Absolutely. And then, and, and as, and as they do it, um, you know, and as, as they can step in and help you, you know, you mentioned outcomes and you mentioned some of those things, how important is it, is it, you know, I'm, I'm doing a follow-up question here is, is how important it is for the patients to be involved in that with, with the pharmaceutical company to kind of guide them, to what they really need. And you see it now as in the registry, but just, you know, talk a little bit of how important the patient can play in terms of what's, what they need in terms of support services, in terms of, you know, the, the endpoints and, and things like that. Yeah. You know, this is, um, this is something that we think about a lot, right? Like from the outside as a researcher, um, when I think about 3 q deletion syndrome, I think about like, well, cognitive ability, right? That's something that we probably want to address. And that would be my naive, like, you know, mm -hmm. approach to this disorder. But when we talk to families, it turns out that cognitive ability isn't really where the, you know, things that affect quality of life. Parents feel like I can deal with cognitive ability. We get support in school. He's in a special class. <coughs> and the cognitive ability issues are relatively mild. Our problem is with our child's anxiety. Our child throws up once a week because he's so anxious. Or my daughter won't go to school because she feels so much anxiety, right? And so this is where it becomes really important for families to engage and to talk about, you know, the cognitive um, disability in 3K29 deletion syndrome is not a threat to functioning. It's really this anxiety piece or it's the executive function piece or it's the risk for schizophrenia, right? We could, if we wanted to address something to really help these kids, we could leave the cognitive ability alone. If we alleviated anxiety, things would get better for the family and for the child. If we could improve executive function, things would get better for the family and the child. And so I think this is a critical, you've hit on a critical point, right? Which is that we really need to interact with the families to understand, um, which aspects of the phenotype, especially for multifactorial phenotypes like 3Q29 deletion syndrome, where they can be many things, um, many sort of manifestations that are happening, you need to understand which is the key thing that is affecting quality of life for the family and for the child and what's the threat to independence. So it's, so to answer your question, it's crucial for parent, for families to be involved. 
Yeah, and we and we're hearing that on, on in a theme on some of our other guests is you know they they talk about the uh, the importance of the families to be involved, and they talk about the importance of you know as as they discuss those endpoints, and like you said, it's the it's the real world you know evidence, or it's the it's the you know the way that somebody acts or interacts with with those children is is going to be key and then also with the caregivers there, there's definitely going to be support around what the caregivers need because they're caring for these children and they and they need some of that that support and you know it's what's what i think is important is for, a good thing is is for patients to meet other patients and i don't know if you got do you guys do that with your registry do you have support groups do you, do you connect patients with other patients do you you know maybe talk about that for a real, you know, a second and, you know, and we can, uh, we can just see how that, that can be a a huge help to some of these patients. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of our families reported to us when we first started doing the study or when we first opened the registry, um, they were so happy to find us because they would say things like, Oh, our clinic told us that this is the first case of, you know, our child is the first case they've ever seen or, you know, and that's not helpful. It makes the family feel really isolated. Um, and so we thought about it from a clinical perspective, it would be great if there was a group of clinicians who knew what this disorder was. Um, but then it turns out um, that not only that our families also really want to meet one another, they want to get to know one another. And the kids themselves express yeah. this. They say, um, you know, we had an 18-year-old boy say, I really want to meet another kid like me. Um, and so that's exactly some of the things that we've done. The parents have really taken on a lot of this. We've just provided sort of a, a like a nucleation point for them to gather. Um, but we know of one little girl now who has pen pals um, with in Australia, kids who have the same exact deletion. Um, we know another a group that's connected. And I think this summer they have plans to take a road trip together and meet one another. Um, and so that is beautiful and it's lovely. And I think for these kids, knowing even one other person who has the same disorder that they do can make things a little less isolating um, and, and can like broaden their, their whole world, you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree. I, I couldn't agree more. I was actually uh, on the board of uh, Alpha One Kids at one point in time, which is, you know, the disorder my family has, Alpha One and a trypsin deficiency. And at the uh, National Alpha One Conference where we had patients and physicians and researchers and everybody kind of come together and they do that usually once a year prior to the pandemic. It was live. Now it's online. But they would they, we'd always try to make sure that we did one every like third year in a family vacation destination area. So like Disney, Disneyland or Disney World um, and, and things like that. So then we'd have a, 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 a place for all the kids who are affected. And, you know, Alpha One typically affects, you know, we, we see the effects in older adults and emphysema, but it does affect kids in, with liver. So you have, you know, kids with liver affected uh, kids who either had transplants or a pre-transplant or they're just, you know, or, or unfortunately sick. But you, you see the kids get together and, you know, they, they may have, you know, written to each other. Or they may have been in a support group somewhere. But when they get together, it was they were instant friends and they were, you know, I, you're just like me. And, you know, I, I've never met another alpha. And, and it was also great for the parents because as a parent, you, you know, go through life and you're going, I would love just to talk to somebody else going through the same thing as me and help me, you know, understand what, what just, just to calm me down for a second where I'm not sitting there, the why me factor, right. Or, or how can I get through this and knowing someone else. But th- at that point, you know, the, 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 the alpha one kids would all get together and it was, it was so beautiful to see. And, you know, they, they would, 
enjoy a day at the park and, and, and enjoy the time together at the pool and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I'm friends with some of them now that they're 25 years old, <laughs> 30 years old, having kids of their own and, you know, still friends, still, still taking family vacations with their, 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 the kids they met 20 years ago at the first alpha one kids foundation meeting we had. And it's, it's neat to see that. So, and as you, uh, you know, progress in this, Donovan. I'm sure you see it too. So, yeah. What a wonderful thing you've done. I mean, so, that's huge, right? To, 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 to have that kind of community. Uh, that's really amazing. Yeah, <laughs> you should be very proud of that. It's <laughs> the, the Alpha One Foundation has done a really good job and I'm just, I'm just happy to be part of some of that and part about, you know, part of just helping uh, with awareness detection education. They've done a, they've done a tremendous job on it. So, and I, you know, if there's, if there's anything you want to, you know, talk about after the podcast, we can, I can share ideas with you and how you can get your folks together and, um, you know, and see how they've set up their, their registry is probably much like yours. And the research behind it is, is a lot like yours. So it started with the grassroots. It started with somebody who believed in something just like you, and they've done a really good job. John Walsh was one of the you know original founders and unfortunately he's passed away, but he's, he's really built a community of, of folks where they all get together and there's a bunch of people worldwide that, that comes together a couple times, you know, a couple times a decade to, to really celebrate and understand research and development. So, but I, so we actually have a, what I'm hoping that we're going to follow in your footsteps. We yeah. have a, a camp that is planned awesome. for um, this October. Yeah. And we're hoping to bring our, um, our community together just like you have and to have families meet. So fingers crossed. It, it, it'll be, it'll be, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's, and you know, I, I, it's, it's magical. I can't explain it, but you'll, you'll experience that this summer, hopefully. And you know, the, the families that you have there, knowing one of the families that I'm sure will be there, I'm, uh, you'll have a great time, you know, with them. <laughs> um, so looking at, looking at this year, right. So it's, we're in our second season, our second season of our podcast, and, and we've chosen a theme called onward. Um, and what we mean by that is how can we look forward together? And, you know, looking at that theme and, and looking at what we're doing, what kind of future do you think is possible for research and rare disease and maybe even your own personal research and, and getting together with, you know, some of those families? Um, so, so, uh, so this is a great question because I think um, part of this is technology, right? So once upon mm -hmm. a time, 20 years ago, we could do certain kinds of genetic tests and we could find certain kinds of diseases, right? And then sequencing got cheaper. Interrogating the entire genome got cheaper. And as we started to do that, we just started to discover more and more rare genetic syndromes. The Reiki Chinon deletion syndrome was really just described in like 2005. So we haven't even known about it that long. Um, and I think um, as we come to understand how many rare diseases there are, um, it's going to sort of change the landscape of uh, so so why are rare diseases important right <laughs> <laughs> so um, so many years ago right um, Joe Brown and Mike Goldstein Brown and Goldstein uh, they were new assistant professors in Texas and there was this interesting these interesting families you know um, they had a normal diet a low fat diet, in fact, and yet they had runaway um, cholesterol. Uh, it's called familial hypercholesterolemia. Mm -hmm. And the severe form of it occurs literally one in a thousand people, right? Extremely rare. 
And Brown and Goldstein were like, hey, let's study this. Why not, right? Young assistant professors, they can do what they want. Um, and they um, discovered that this was due to a genetic defect. And it turns out the genetic defect was in the LDL receptor, right? And so the idea that there was a receptor in the body for cholesterol, which we found because it was broken in these families, was such an innovative and groundbreaking idea, right? We never would have expected that there were... Um, that there were receptors for cholesterol. Um, And of course, Joe Brown and Mike Goldstein won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. Um, And understanding that led to a global understanding of cholesterol metabolism and and paved the way for statins, right? And now statins, like you have any kind of heart problem at all, the first thing they do is they prescribe statins for you, right? How many millions of people get prescribed statins every year? Um, And so statins, this discovery, which has lowered heart disease, morbidity, and mortality, came directly out of the study of this extremely rare niche disorder, right, that occurred one in a million people. And I think it's exactly for exactly that reason, like not only does understanding rare disease help the rare disease communities themselves, but um, there's a phrase called treasure exceptions, which was coined by a geneticist, William Bateson. Um, Bateson's treasure exceptions, right? You study those exceptions, and even though they're exceptions and they're rare, they tell you so much about what's required for normal functioning. And so, and I started by saying technology is here, and te- with technology, we're discovering more and more rare diseases. I think study of rare diseases is where it's at. I think that that is going to tell us so much about normal human physiology, normal human biology. Um, I think that that's, it's a huge potential, and I think this, this work is only going to grow. I can't agree more, and, and, and it's, folks, it's folks like you that, you know, that are involved in this every day and it's the start, it's the stop, it's the pushing through, it's the asking why it's, you know, getting the families involved, it's getting the folks involved. And, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for what you've done, you know, for all the research and, and getting involved like you have. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there with that would, that would love to get in touch with you. So how, how can folks learn more about you and, and more about what you're doing? Um, so we have a project website. If you Google um, 3Q29 Emory, uh, you'll find our project website. You'll find us. Um, anybody who has 3Q29 deletion syndrome or who knows someone with 3Q29 deletion syndrome who wants to want more, who wants to learn more, should send me an email. It's my first initial, J, my last name, M-U-L-L-E, at emory.edu, E-M-O-R-Y. Uh, shoot me an email, and I'd love to hear from you, and we can uh, hook you up and get you uh, situated. We hear all the time. We hear from families. We hear from physicians. We hear from people interested in research. We collaborate all over the place. Um, and we'd love to hear from people who are part of the community or who want to learn about the community. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I encourage folks to reach out to Jen. She's uh, she's a wealth of knowledge and, you know, has a cause behind her. So um, reach out. And I thank you so much, Jen, for joining us on Rare Voices. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful to be here. You've been listening to Rare Voices, brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. If you want to hear more Rare Voices, go to rare-voices.com. There you can learn about our shows, read articles from industry thought leaders, and fill out a form to be a guest on Rare Voices. Again, that's rare-voices.com. I'm Donovan Quill, co-founder of OptimiCare. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to listen for more Rare Voices all around you, each and every day.